Thank you for joining us today on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited that you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our Lord's Supper weekend. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Amen. Amen, Hope Church. You can go ahead and be seated. I know if you're a part of the Hope Church family so far, the service has been a little quicker than normal. Things are a little different. I'll explain why right now. We're going to worship a little bit more towards the end of our service. Historically speaking at Hope, we have intentionally, the week before we celebrate Easter, which we'll be doing next weekend, taken some time to focus on the cross of Jesus Christ and specifically receiving the Lord's Supper together. So in just a little while, I will come and lead us as we just remember the cross by receiving the Lord's Supper together, singing a couple more worship songs, and just really remembering and examining ourselves as we lift high the name of Jesus on the cross. But before that, we have an incredible privilege to hear the Bible preached by a friend of Hope Church. We love him. You love him. Pastor Brian Loritz is here in town this weekend. We love you, man. So glad you're here. Can't wait for you to hear the word that God has given Pastor Brian. Brian Loritz is the teaching pastor at Summit Church in North Carolina, a friend of our church. We love having Pastor Brian in town and can't wait to see how God uses the message. So he's going to come preach in just a moment. I want to pray for him. And then I will come up later and lead us in the Lord's Supper and we will continue to worship together today. So let us pray before Pastor Brian comes and preaches. Jesus, today we are grateful. We're grateful to gather in this place. I thank you so much for familiar faces, new faces, every single person that's here today. Thank you, Lord, for bringing them into this place, maybe even watching online. God, I'm excited now being the third time I've sat through it, Lord. I'm excited for the word of God to be proclaimed today and what you are going to do, the purposes of yours that you are going to accomplish through the preaching and the receiving of the word of God today. Maybe before we even begin, just right there where you're seated, just ask the Lord, speak to me, Jesus. Through your word, by the power of your spirit, speak to me. God, as we sit under the word, as we prepare our hearts, as you prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper in just a bit, Jesus be on our minds, the forefront of our minds, the cross be our focus today. Thank you for what you did on the cross for us. Pray now we'd receive what it is you have for us. Every person in the room, we trust you, we love you, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Hope family. This is one of my favorite churches. I would say it's my favorite church, but I'm contractually obligated to say the one in North Carolina is, okay? Uh, but if you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As you're making your way there, uh, this has just been an amazing few days for me personally. I did a thing yesterday for the first time in my life. I went to a hockey game. Um, go Knights, go. And um, I actually went with your founding pastor, Vance Pittman. Um, yes, he is a little over the top when it comes 
to sports. He was actually, uh, we, we made the Jumbotron, and he was like all in, so excited. Uh, there may have been a little bit of a fight. Um, the gloves didn't come off on the ice, and he may or may not have encouraged it to continue, uh, but we won't go any further uh, than that. Uh, today is an important day on the church calendar. If you're new to uh, the church world, if you're new to kind of exploring what Christianity is, this is what we call Palm Sunday, where we want to focus on the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, true story, um, uh, right before the first service, I was in the lobby there just kind of shaking hands with people, and one of the greeters, uh, she was greeting people by saying, it's Palm Sunday, put your palms up, put your palms up. <laughs> I'm like, man, I just love this church. First Corinthians chapter 1, they've asked me to focus on the death of Jesus Christ on this Sunday. Pick me up in verse 18. The guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. Paul says these words, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's like he's saying, if, if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, I mean, this stuff, it makes no sense. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one, verse 20, who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22, underline it. This is kind of the epicenter where we will spend a lot of time. Paul says, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews And folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. One of the things that me and my youngest son like to do, and in fact, uh, man, it's just kind of hard to believe he just graduated high school in January, and uh, he's going to take off in September. Where to? I don't know. He's just going to get out. Um, so, um, you know, I know where he's going, but uh, one of the things we like to do is we love watching uh, basketball together. So March Madness, I'm sure this is a UNLV crowd. I'm guessing you weren't cheering about San Diego State um, <laughs> yesterday, but um, and so we love watching watching basketball games. And I remember a couple years ago we were sitting there watching the NBA All Star Game, and some of you all can remember this as they do in at all the NBA games, in fact, at all the sporting events, uh, right before tip-off, all the teams, uh, the two teams will line up, uh, and they'll sing the classic, the Star Spangled Banner. It's classic. Uh, People place their hand over their hearts. It's kind of a solemn moment. You're not cracking jokes or giggling. It's just very kind of honoring and focused moment, as it should be. But this year is a little different. Some of y'all can remember it. Because the person they got to sing this classic uh, was a woman by the name of Fergie. I'm hearing some chuckles and some laughs because you know where I'm going. That's a classic. Now, there's a basic rule to classics. You don't fiddle with classics. 
right? You're not going to try to improve upon or remix the Mona Lisa or, you know, the Eiffel. I mean, these are just classics. Just let the classic do what the classic does. I mean, if you haven't been ministered to by Whitney Houston singing the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl in 1991 or whatever, she just kind of let the classic be the classic, but not Fergie. She did this like bluesy, breathy thing that was like a train wreck. (laughs) I mean, it was horrendous. And, you know, I'm seeing guys, you know, their shoulders are bopping up and down. They're trying to suppress the laughter. Other people are like, the look on their face is disgust. And what in the world just happened? And it was totally messed up because she tried to do a classic in her own way. When it comes to Christianity, Christianity centers around an oldie but a goodie. A classic. It's called the message of the cross. We don't remix the cross. We don't fiddle with the cross. We don't Fergieize <laughs> the cross. Our faith rests not on the opinions of others, not on our good works. Our faith rests on the cross. The message of the cross of Jesus Christ is that all of us, all of us were sinners, are sinners. In fact, it's not just that we've said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing or thought the wrong thing, but the message of Christianity is before we said or did or thought the wrong thing, we were born into this world as sinners, the doctrine of original sin. Uh, David would say in Psalm 51, I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's why our kids don't need tutorials as infants on how to be selfish or later on on how how to lie. They don't need tutorials. Those little precious tax write-offs, they don't need that. It's just baked in. And here's the problem. Our sins racked up a debt with God we could not pay. All of us were deserving of an eternity in hell. We were marching down a one-way street headed for hell. And God in his justice could not just look the other way. The bill had to be paid. The message of Christianity is Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, raised his hand and said, I will die in their place and for their sins. This is the doctrine of the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ. He says, I'll come to earth. John says it this way. Um, He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the life we could never have lived. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died the death we should have died. They placed a crown of thorns on him. They whipped him. They scourged him with the cat of nine tails, with, which had pieces of bone and metal into it. And it would, it would grab into his back and take out huge hunks of flesh. Roman centurions, they then came along and whenever they crucified someone, they nailed long nails or rivets in their wrists and it would strike a nerve causing the hands to draw up like this, long rivets in in his 
feet. He would be dropped into a post by those centurions. Upon being dropped into a post, all of his joints would become dislocated. His lungs would begin to fill up. You died, when you died the death of the crucifixion, you technically died by asphyxiation. You suffocated to death. The average length of time it took you to die The death of crucifixion, Lee Strobel, who interviews an expert on ancient crucifixion in his wonderful book, The Case for Christ, says the average length of time it took you to die the death death of crucifixion wasn't two or three minutes, wasn't two or three hours, but the average length of time was two or three days. Witnesses to crucifixion all say the same thing. The sound that you heard from those being crucified were the belabored breathings. You would have to... (gasps) push up to get air and he did it for you for you for you for me that that is the classic message of the cross in our place for our sins. Now here's my concern. I think all of us just struggle from time to time with Fergieizing the cross. We think we have to add to the cross. When we don't realize that Christ plus anything equals nothing, but Christ plus nothing equals everything. We tend to forget that what gets us into the kingdom, grace, keeps us in the kingdom, grace. So what does this look like? Uh, let me just give you kind of a couple examples of how we try to remix this classic message of the cross in our own attempt. Some of you are here. I believe you're here right now, and, and you're, you're, you're in church, and some of you are like, man, I'm, I'm in church because I've just had just a bad run, man. I've just, I've just said and done and thought a lot of bad stuff that I shouldn't have done, and so let me get to church and just try to get some hand sanitizer for my soul. Others of you, man, I'm really praying about something. I'm really believing God for something. I really need him to show up in my life for something. So so let me just read my Bible a little bit more. Let me just pray a little bit longer. Let me just give a little bit more money. And maybe this will kind of situate me and on God's good side, and he'll look at me with favor and give me what I'm as, as if the cross isn't enough. Others of you, in my years of pastoral ministry, I'm not making this up. There's some people who actually exist like that. Some of y'all are here. You're like, I hadn't done anything yet. But I'm about to get into some stuff, Pastor. Let me come on to the Lord's house and make a prepayment. All of this and more is us messing up the classic message of the cross. And refusing to receive his free gift of salvation. It's refusing to settle in and to say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
Sin has left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. This is the problem with the Corinthians. As Paul sits down and he writes to the Corinthians, man, he's really disappointed in kind of the path they're venturing down. Around about, around about verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, Paul says, I've gotten some bad news about you that, that you guys have gotten sideways with each other. They were kind of factioning off among whom they deemed to be the celebrities, the blue check marks of the church. So one group of people said, man, Paul's my guy, founder of the church, that's my guy. Another, another group says, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not Vance. I mean, it's not Paul, it's Scott. I mean, I mean um, uh, Apollos, his successor, is my guy. That's my guy. That's who I follow. Another group of people, no, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not Paul. It's not Apollos. Other people are, are saying, it's Peter, the one who got it started off on the day of Pentecost. Another group, no, no, it's Christ. And they're just divided with each other. That tends to happen, by the way, when you lose sight of the main thing. What's more than that is Acts chapter 18 and talking about the founding of the church at Corinth and Acts chapter 18, we see very clearly that Paul was reasoning, he was sharing the gospel among Jew and Greek. So this is a multi-ethnic church with a strong Greek culture. If you understand anything about the Greeks, they, they love their speakers. They loved their speakers. They were into oratory. Uh, they were into great communicators. They were into flowery language. They loved all that stuff. And if you just read 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, look, when I came to you, I intentionally came not using kind of words of wisdom, not using all these catchy analogies or illustrations. I, I, I came to you uh, intentionally boring because I didn't want your, your faith to rest on the messenger, but on the message. I, I, didn't, I didn't want you just kind of coming to church and kind of looking around, being like, who's going to be speaking today? Because if Christ isn't good enough for you, nothing will be good enough for you. So, um, I um, I love Lowry's seasoning salt. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, let me help you out. You never have to invite me to your house to eat. <laughs> I gave this illustration after the first service. Somebody actually gave this to me. From the, I'm like, is this how you roll? You just come to church with Lowry's seasoning salt, like in your purse. Man, you sprinkle a little bit of this on some chicken, on some fish, on some steak. I mean, they have to have this at the Feast of the New Covenant. When we get to heaven, Lowry's has to be on the table. Some of y'all are so confused right now. You know, a little bit of this on meat is great. Too much ruins it. What Lowry's is to meet is what illustrations, analogies, stories, communication techniques is to the cross. Yeah, we use it. We, we sprinkle a little bit. But if the punchline of my message to you today is, oh, good speaker, I've missed it. We don't revel in the Lowry's. 
We revel in the filet mignon. Because you can't grow off of Lowry's. In fact, if that's all you're eating, you're going to die, baby. <laughs> Paul said, I, I came bringing the steak of the gospel. Let me stop saying this because I, I don't want to offend you vegans. I, I, came, I came bringing the roasted cauliflower of the gospel. <laughs> Paul says, but when it comes to the cross, historically, Paul's going to share with us, there's two groups of people who have a problem with the cross. He says in our text, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. If you understand anything about the Jews, man, they, they were into their signs. They, they, if you just kind of read the ministry of Jesus Christ, and, and specifically you read those Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll, you'll see Jesus. He's not anti-signs, by the way. We, we see him healing people. We see him raising people from the dead. We, we see him feeding the masses with a few pieces of fish and a few loaves of, of bread. Jesus Christ isn't anti-signs. He's not anti this stuff. And yet, there's a couple problems with people who are constantly saying, do this for me, Jesus, do this for me, Jesus, do this for me, Jesus. See, at the end of the day, here's what the Jews were saying, and, and, and maybe, maybe you'll see yourself in this. The primary posture of the Jews when it came to Jesus was, prove yourself to me, Jesus, then I'll believe. Meet my needs, Jesus, then I'll be all in. Jesus, you be my genie in a bottle. Check off everything on my prayer list, and then I'll follow you. There's a couple problems with that. One is... If you just read through the scriptures, we, we see God doing all kinds of signs. So even if I can just take you back to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, and here's, here's Israel in bondage to Egypt. And what does God do? He shows up and he does 10 amazing signs. They're called the 10 plagues. And he sets them free. And not only that, he opens up, he opens up the Red Sea and they walk through. I love this. Not that, not that they only walk through, but they walk through, the Bible says, on dry ground. Like your J's didn't even get muddy. And then, as if that wasn't enough, every single, well, six days a week, for the next 40 years, there's a sign. It's called manna from heaven. I mean, you're getting that for decades. And then the 12 spies go in to spy out the land. Ten of them come back and say, no bueno, not good. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are like, let's trust God. Let's believe God. What does the congregation do? This congregation that saw the ten plagues, that walked through on dry ground, that was getting manna from heaven every single day, they start to murmur and complain and doubt, and they won't trust God. And what Israel teaches us is just because God keeps showing up over and over in our lives, answering our prayers, does not make us strong people of faith. 
And then Jesus gets on the scene. When Jesus comes, Israel is in bondage to Rome. And the reason why they rejected Jesus is because they wanted their Messiah to be a political Messiah who would get them out of bondage to Rome. And when Jesus didn't perform that sign for them, they crucified him. See, here's the main problem with signs. Jesus says, your problem with signs is signs in and of itself, your healing, your deliverance, your miracle. The punchline is you. But for me, signs just point to a greater punchline, which isn't you. It's me. Let me explain it to you this way. I, I told you some time ago when my wife and I first got married, man, we were po. Not poor. I couldn't afford the other O and the R. We were, we were po, like broke. And living in Southern California. I mean, that's just... And so there was a couple at our church, man. They, they invited my wife and I out to a steak dinner. I'm like, all in. You're paying for it, all in. So we go to JJ's Steakhouse. It's since closed. But at the time, it was in Old Town, Pasadena, right there off of Colorado. And, uh, man, it was one of these fancy steakhouses. And we put on our best outfits. We sit down with this couple. Waiter comes. We order our steaks, man. And um, no sooner had we ordered our steaks, and like two, three, five minutes later, they're bringing us sorbet. Now, I'm confused. Because I haven't ordered sorbet, and why are you bringing me dessert before the main course? So me and my uncultured self, I say, dessert? Why are they bringing dessert? I didn't order dessert. And then my shin starts to hurt because my wife is kicking me under the table. She's saying, use your inside voice, brother. You're embarrassing me. They're bringing us sorbet, and I know we didn't order it, but the sorbet is to cleanse the palate to ready you for the main course. What sorbet is to steak, signs are to Christ. The punchline is Christ. See, here's the problem, and I want you to look at this with me. When we say, do this thing, Jesus, and then I will believe, we have revealed that the thing we want Jesus to do, heal us, make us pregnant, get us the job, is our real God and not Jesus. Jesus is just our assistant. And that's where some of y'all are. I want to be sensitive in how I say this, but maybe someone's here today and you've been on this journey of infertility and we sit with you and we grieve with you. We want to walk with you. But maybe some of you are saying, man, I've been praying and we've been on this journey for years. I don't know how much longer I can hold on because I'm asking Jesus to show up and he hadn't shown up. I'm out. Others of you, man, I've got cancer in my body, and I've been begging Jesus to heal me or to heal this loved one. <laughs> and I'm seeing people who don't know Christ, they just seem as healthy as ever, but here I am trying to serve Christ, and I'm praying to Christ, and I'm getting nothing. I don't know how much longer I can hold on in my faith. 
Jesus, perform the sign. Get my rebellious child back. My rebellious child is showing no, no regard for you. I want him to come back in right relationship. And some of you all are so fatigued in that prayer. You're, you've reached a point. I don't know how much longer I can do this Jesus thing. Jesus is looking for some ride or dies. who ain't following him for the benefits package, who are going to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when the king says, hey, if you don't bow, I'm going to put you in the fiery furnace, and what God is there who can rescue you out of my hand? And I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, oh, king, our God is able, but even if he does not, We're not looking for the sign. He's good. And for us, he's good because of the cross. I'm playing with house money. If he does nothing else for me, he's done enough because of the cross. But not only do Jews demand signs, he goes on to say, look at it with me, verse 22, Greeks seek wisdom. I don't have time to completely unpack this, but the idea behind the word wisdom here, he's not talking biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is the skillful application of knowledge to life circumstances and situations. That's not what he's talking about when he says Greeks seek wisdom. Instead, the idea here in context is that Greeks seek reason or rationale. After all, these are the people who gave us philosophy. These were the people who, who, who gave us people like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato who tried to make sense out of life. The problem with the Jews is prove yourself to me, Jesus, then I'll believe. The problem with the Greeks is make sense to me, Jesus, then I'll believe. If, I don't make, if you don't make sense... If, if I can't put you in a nice little intellectual box, I can't follow you. Let me show you how we do this today. The reason why one of the top deterrents to people coming to faith in Jesus, and some of you are here right now, the reason why that suffering, the reason why suffering is so hard is because suffering doesn't make sense. Why does a, a good God let bad stuff happen to good people? I don't, I don't understand that. And so when the equation doesn't work out, I've been a good boy over here. I've been a good girl over here. And I'm getting bad outcomes over here. I'm out. Do you not see how we're just like the Greeks? If God doesn't make sense to me, I can't follow him. Maybe a couple analogies will help. There's a guy that you know. He's since died, co-founder of Apple, a guy by the name of Steve Jobs. 
when Steve Jobs was 12, um, he was a member of a Lutheran church there in Mountain View, California. And that week, he saw a Life magazine, and on the cover of it was a group of starving kids from Africa. And all that week, that, that picture just messed with him. He's 12 years old. He gets to church that Sunday. He takes a Life magazine, and he slams it down. You, know, you just see little Steve Jobs doing it. Slams it down on, on the pastor's desk. He says, hey, does God know about this? pastor said, yeah. 12-year-old Steve Jobs says, then why doesn't he do something? Not satisfied with the pastor's answer, Steve Jobs left the church and never, ever in his life came back. God didn't make sense. This is hitting me right now. One of my closest friends right now. We first met Gosh, December of 1995 in L.A. He's an artist. Music industry had just come to faith in God. When I met him, he had two BMWs. We got in a small group together. I watch him grow and get nurtured in his faith, man. You just talk about a guy all in. He's, he's coming to church every single Sunday. But it's interesting. The moment he started following Jesus, it just felt like his career just started to decline. And I just kind of watched him lose everything. He lost his cars. I literally watched him go from two BMWs to riding a bicycle around on South, in Southern California. Yet he's coming to church and he's serving. And it moves to Orlando, man. I just kind of watching life deteriorate. But he's still showing up. He's still faithful. He's still trusting in God. And yet I just came from his house a couple weeks ago visiting him for the second time as he's dying of Lou Gehrig's. I don't know if you've ever seen someone die of Lou Gehrig's. It's one of the most horrific ways to die. We text each other. And he said, pray for my kids. Their faith is hanging by a thread because they're watching their father who proclaims Christ suffer. And they're going, it doesn't make sense. And that's where some of you are. Don't get it, Brian. I've been coming to church. I've been serving in ministry. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. And and, and here I am. I just got diagnosed with this disease. Doesn't make sense. I, I don't get it, Brian. I... Man, I've been coming to church. I've been giving not just to hope, but through hope. I've been generous with my finances, but I just got laid off of my job, and I'm having a doozy of a time finding another one. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand, Brian. I I wasn't the best wife in the world. I wasn't the best husband in the world, but I, I, I did my best to love them and to serve them only to be wounded by their infidelity. It doesn't make sense. The equation isn't lining up. What would God say to this whole notion of why bad things happen to quote-unquote good people. What would God say to that? You know, the only thing worse than suffering is watching your kids suffer. I spent five years at St. Jude's. You know how many times I prayed, put what he has on me. Rips your heart out. Here's what I think God's saying. 
I grieve with you. I'm not making light. But don't question my goodness. And don't act as if you're the only one who's had to endure suffering. If you want to keep score, you're suffering. You, a good person, are going through bad things. I can do you one better. I've had to watch my perfect son suffer. I've had to watch my not just good child, my perfect child suffer on a cross. You gonna keep going? And why did my perfect child suffer? Because of your sin. So let me get this straight. You, the one who wants to give up on me, caused my child to suffer. I think the point of Christianity is this. For we do not have a high priest, Hebrews 4 says, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus can sit with us in suffering. He can be with us as we're enduring another round of chemo and legitimately say, I've been on a cross. I've endured hardship. I'm crying with you. I'm with you in this moment. Will you trust me? Okay, Brian, that's good. But practically speaking, what what does the cross, what does it give me when, when I wake up tomorrow morning? I have to start walking this stuff out. Let me give you three quick practical applications of the power of the cross in our lives. First of all, the cross provides power in that it humbles me. Paul tells the Corinthians that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. The the, the phrase stumbling block, it's one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word scandalos, from which we get the English word scandalous from. It's a scandal. It's a stumbling block. It trips them up. Why? Because the Jews were the most moral people in world history. They They were at the synagogue every week. They were at the temple at high and holy days. They were offering their sacrifices. And the Jews kind of had it in their mind. We're the good people. We do good things. And and we can get to God on our own terms. And here along comes the cross. And the cross says, you can't do enough good stuff. It is only found in me. And that's a stumbling block. See, what the cross fundamentally says is there are no good people and bad people. There are no insiders and outsiders. We're all outsiders in need of a Savior. So practically speaking, how does this work itself out? Fasten your seatbelts. One of my sons in the ministry called me the other day, and he's been in the midst of just a bad marriage from day one. I said, how's it going? And I could hear the exhaustion, the weariness, the fatigue in him. He says, Pastor, I don't know how much longer I can do this, man. I'm trying my best. And then he says, but she's just so hard to love. I said, whoa, whoa. let me stop you for a moment. 
Do you believe in the cross? Yes. The message of the cross says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus died for the world. We're all sinners. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. What does that mean? If you believe that, then your wife ain't the only one in the marriage who's hard to love. So are you. Do you see how the cross humbles us? You've been saved two years and you think you're better than people. You've contracted spiritual amnesia. You've been saved. And salvation by grace through faith, not of works, should humble me. But not only that, it reconciles. Remember, Paul is giving these instructions right on the heels of talking about a divided church. The implication is, is that the cross restores relationships both vertically and horizontally. Look with me, if you will, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled, reconciled, reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That word reconciliation is Greek word lasso. He, he, he lassoes something that was wild and running away and brings it back. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It is because of the, of the cross that we are restored to right relationship with God vertically and also with one another horizontally, which means this, look at it with me, broken relationships linger when we look away from the cross. If you have a broken relationship in your life right now and you have not made the attempt to do the work of reconciliation, parenthetically, I believe that there's some relationships in our life we do the attempt and it, they don't get fixed because that person is not working with me to repair it. We get that. It takes two to have a healthy relationship. But if you haven't done anything to, do, to, take, to take initiative to reconcile, then you've lost sight of the cross. Because the message of the cross is this. Because of Jesus Christ, you and God are good. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and God are good. I had to do a funeral the, not too long ago, and I, I knew it was going to be a mess because the woman who died, she had three adult children, and those children hadn't spoken to one another in years. And I, I just walked into the church, and I go, this is going to be really interesting because they're family. They're going to be sitting next to each other. For the first time in years, how, this is, how is this going to work? We file in, open casket. I watch as each of her three now adult children stop at the casket, looking at the corpse of their mother who for years had prayed for their reconciliation. And the tears began to flow. That then led to them hugging and embracing one another and forgiving each other. Death tends to focus us on what really matters. When you contemplate the death of Christ and that you and God are good, 
that should push you to repair broken relationships with others. Last thing. You can't have reconciliation without forgiveness. The cross gives us power to forgive. That's what the cross does. The message of the cross is that God has forgiven us. Every sin we've ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit. And having received that forgiveness, we now become not a cul-de-sac of that forgiveness, but a boulevard of that forgiveness where I receive forgiveness and it passes right on through me to other people. It's the message of Matthew 18, 21 to 35. When a person who owes 10,000 talents, I love this. One commentator said this person owes the equivalent of America's debt to China. And the king, in an insane act of forgiveness, releases him, lets him go, only for this joker to go out and find someone who owes him a few dollars and starts choking him, saying, pay me what you owe. And the king hears about it and goes, are you kidding me? I think the message is this. I think God's going, Brian, I've forgiven you of everything you've ever done, are doing, and will ever do. And let me get this straight. You're not speaking to this person who gossiped about you one time. An unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. You want to know if whether or not, as my grandmama would say, you want to know if whether or not you show enough saved? If you really want to know if you're saved, it's not how you treat people who are kind to you. It's how you treat people who are nasty to you. His name was Charles Roberts IV. One day in the early 2000s, in fact, I was thinking about this just this week with the Nashville shooting. In the early 2000s, true story, Charles Roberts IV walks into an Amish schoolhouse, takes out his assault weapon, and just goes to, goes to town. Kills five Amish schoolgirls around the ages of nine or ten, wounds five others, and then in an cowardly act, he turns the gun on himself and takes his own life. The problem was five Amish schoolgirls who were wounded were clinging for life at the local hospital, but their families did not have medical insurance. And so as the days and weeks went by, the bills were mounting. The global community heard about this in an astounding act of grace. The global community gave millions of dollars over what they actually needed to care for the kids. It's at this point when the Amish elders had a dilemma. What do we do with the extra money? And they held a meeting. And one of them said, well, what about the widow of Charles Roberts IV? We hear she has children who will care for her. So immediately, these Amish elders marched to the widow of Charles Roberts IV, the one who had killed and wounded their kids. They hugged her. They embraced her. They said, we forgive you. We hold no grudge against you. Then they gave her a million dollars. TV reporter was overcome shoved a microphone in one of the faces of these Amish elders and says, forgive? Are you crazy? 
How can you forgive? And I love the response of this Amish elder. He shrugged his shoulders and says, because we're Christian. That's what Christians do. Don't you see all of this is threaded back into the cross? It's not threaded in in my moral strivings. When you really get a glimpse, I'm the messed up one. I'm the one who day by day is in need of God's grace and forgiveness when you really let that settle in. God doesn't just forgive some of my sins. He forgives all of it. We sing a song my little chocolate church on the south side of Atlanta. We sing about the blood. We say it reaches to the highest mountains. Come on, go with me, somebody. And it flows to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength, not just on Sundays. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. Oh, if I could sing, I'd bless you. And we ended by saying, it will never. I see you, Mother. It will never lose its power. Father, thank you for the blood. Thank you that we can't get away from it. If we get up to the highest mountain, your blood is there. And if we get down to the lowest of the valleys, your blood is there too. It reaches us, Lord God. It grabs us. Oh, may Hope Church be a church known as those blood-bought, blood-washed people who live in forgiveness and reconciliation and humility because that is the message of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.